You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. Well, good morning and happy Easter. If you have a phone, I'm going to invite you to take it out. And as you do, you can jump on our free Wi-Fi, however it will help. I'm going to ask you to participate in a little game in just a moment. You go to this website right behind me, kahoot.it. And when you do, it'll ask you for a pin, and you can put in the pin that number that's there, and then you have to come up with a nickname, or you can use your real name. We'll see who will win in just a moment. Before you do, as you're going there, let, let me just tell you a little bit of a story, setting up our teaching time today. Uh, I remember when I was 17 years old what I was doing. Uh, do you? Because it wasn't that long ago. And when I was 17, I was attending high school and I was traveling on weekends with a band throughout the Maritimes playing keys for them. And I was the youngest member of that band. So that meant every Friday at high school, there was a van filled with equipment parked right out in front of the high school. They'd have to pick me up from school to hit the road. Now, one of the members of my band who was older than me had an addiction problem. A serious addiction problem. And at the time, I didn't understand it. Much as I tried, I couldn't, largely probably because of my age. But this addiction would kick in at the top of every hour, no matter where we were in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, or PEI, every hour this addiction would kick in. And it always was accompanied with this sound. This is CBC News. The guy was a news addict. Total news addict. Every hour we had to listen to the news. All the music stopped in the van. We had to listen to the news because you never knew if there'd be new news. I mean, it was the same report every hour, but you never knew if something new was going to come up. Friends, the way we receive our news today is shifted. Have you noticed that? from print media, like the newspaper, even the radio and the television. Actually, the Pew Research Center says that two-thirds, two-thirds of North Americans receive their news now through social media. Uh, News outlets like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and Snapchat and Instagram. These are all now methods in which people get their news. So are you ready to play the game? Are you all logged in? How many people do we have logged in, Jeff? Whoa, okay, there's a lot of people logged in here. Now, here's what we're going to do. There's going to be a series of questions, and you have to guess what social media platform is used by a particular group to get their news. So we're going to start by looking at what women, women in our culture and society, what social media method do they use to get the news? So here's the question coming up here. You ready? Let's go. Okay, what social media platform do women use to get the news? Here are your options. There's four of them. Choose one quickly. Oh, look at all the answers. 200, 300. Wow. Okay. Oh, Facebook. Facebook was number one, and a close second was Snapchat was the number two one that women get their news from and social media platforms. So Noah, who's Noah? You're, in, you're already ahead. Oh, right here, right here. Pressure's on, pal. There's five more questions. Okay, let's go to the next one. How about men? Where do men predominantly get their news in our culture and society? Here are your options. YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. Oh, 
Look how bad everyone did. LinkedIn was the number. How many are on LinkedIn? Like, I'm not on LinkedIn, but there's a lot of people on it because it rated number one for men in getting their news. Okay, who's in charge now? Oh, where did Noah go? Where did he go? Okay, let, Noah, you'll redeem yourself this next time. Okay, third question. What about, maybe it's generational. Let's talk about those 18 to 29-year-olds. Where do they get their news? Oh, Snapchat. A distant second was Instagram in their survey. Snapchat was the number one. Okay, what about those that are a little bit older? I'm in the 18 to 29, clearly, but that next category, 30 to 49-year-olds, where do they get their news? LinkedIn, Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram. Again, LinkedIn did you in. LinkedIn was number one. Number two was Twitter. Twitter. So, oh man, praise him. Now, praise him. Were you in the first service? Because there was a praise him in the first service. So, if it is, that's not quite fair. I'm not sure if it's the same praise him. But we'll find out. Okay, let's move on. How about those in that age group 50 to 64 years old? Where do they get their news through social media platforms? LinkedIn. I know, I know everyone that's like 18 to 29, they're going like, what? Are you kidding? But that is number one. Number two was Facebook for that age group. Now, how about those 65 years old plus? What social media platform would they use to get their news? Let's see what they say. Facebook. Facebook. So let's see who won. Who won? Mary Mary. Where's Mary Mary? Is Mary Mary in the house? Oh, she's in the cafe. <laughs> well, you clearly don't count. Okay, next. No. Hey, but Noah, Noah, uh, shout out to you. You were the er you peaked early though. You peaked early. Why does this even matter? Well, here's why it matters. If you have a Bible, if not, no worries, I'm going to show you on the screen. We're going to look at a portion of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the Apostle Paul is communicating news. It's a news, and it's very unique news. He wrote it to a church in modern-day Greece, and the news was about the resurrection of Jesus. And he communicates that news as being a fact and I want to explore that with you this morning because it has huge implications to all of our lives. Here's how it starts in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. Now, that's a Greek word that literally means good news. It's a type of news he's communicated. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you when, when you received, uh, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this good news, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins. That was the first part of that news that Paul is communicating as a fact. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. 
Now, Cephas is kind of like a nickname for the apostle Peter. It means rock in Greek, and that's a reflection on Peter, Cephas. And then to the 12, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. So one gathering of 500 people and Jesus in his risen state appeared to them all, most of whom are still living. They're still alive when he wrote this. Though some have fallen asleep. That's a phrase that early Christians used over and over. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, they believed that when we died on this earth, that it was just like going to sleep, that we would be awoken by our Savior again, risen up. He continues to say, Then he appeared to James, that's a half-brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, also as to one abnormally born. Now, why he uses that phrase is he's not comparing, he doesn't feel worthy to be compared to the other apostles. The other apostles, they may have deserted him, they may have betrayed him, they may have denied him, but Paul hunted down Christians, persecuted them, and even had them executed. So he didn't feel worthy to even be mentioned in the same sentence. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if, this is the linchpin verse, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So central to the Christian faith is the resurrection, that without it, we don't have a faith. Now, here's the interesting thing, and please hear this as we start this message off. Christianity, or the Christian message, is primarily a proclamation of a historical event. A fact. It is news the news that Jesus was risen from the grave. That was the news. It is only secondarily a way of living. It is only secondarily principles to live by. It is primarily a proclamation or a news feed about the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, see, he says, without, if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is useless. In other words, this is why this is so important. If Jesus truly did rise from the grave, then you need to accept everything he said. But if he didn't, then why would you worry about any of it? That's what he's saying. Why would you even worry about any of it? And he says, not only would your faith be useless, but our preaching. Now, what do you think of when you think of the word preaching? Do you think of me? you think of this moment? Some of us think of a pulpit. Some of us think of a monologue uh, between one person and a crowd. Some people think of preaching as a self-righteous person up front. Uh, some people think of preaching as a style. It's exciting. It's preaching. That's not at all what Paul was thinking when he used that word. Actually, the Greek word for preaching is, and the New Testament was written in Greek originally, it literally means a herald. When they were trying to think of all of the ways that could characterize Christian communication among early believers, they didn't use the word teaching. That's a different word. They didn't use the word inspiring or edifying, different words. They used the word preaching. And preaching meant a herald. A herald would be like somebody who was a town crier. 
It was the news media outlet of the day. Someone would run into a village or a town or a city and they would shout out the news of the day. That was what a herald did. And it's important to recognize when they talk about sharing this news, they didn't have the same type of news we have today. We have three types of news, don't we, today? The first type of news is, is fake news. <laughs> We've got fake news now. In fact, uh, someone south of the border with a funny haircut, uh, he likes to use the term alternative facts. Potato, potato, right? We have this idea of fake news, and fake news is when you present something as being true, and yet it isn't true. Now, to be clear, there may be even people in this room, and I, and I get it. I totally get it. Let me be upfront. I understand the skepticism around the resurrection. But there are some people that think the resurrection of Jesus, that news, it's fake news. Uh, now, they might even not go so far to say that the faith doesn't matter or church or what we're experiencing even today doesn't matter. But when it comes to somebody who was dead, coming alive again, they're skeptical. Uh, one of the most famous atheists in the world today, Richard Dawkins, read, uh, wrote The God Delusion. He says this. He says, accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> Trying to be dismissive. Now, why does he make those comments? He makes those comments based on the fact that he believes the Gospels or the Bible are not well authenticated or that maybe they've been tampered with, or their legend or suspicion. And it gives birth to all kinds of conspiracy theories about, did the disciples take the body? Uh, did the early church change the text over time to suit in the mystique and legend of Jesus so that the church would continue to grow even with his death? There's all kinds of things that are, are, are it's conjecture there. And it's an assumption. Here's why it's an assumption. Mr. Dawkins and even others struggle with the authenticity often because it doesn't fit their worldview. See, uh, Mr. Dawkins, I have a lot of respect for him. I've read, I, I, I enjoy some of his readings. He's such a smart and intelligent man. But what's interesting is he has no room for the miraculous in his worldview. So he dismisses all of the forensic literature work that's been done by historians, Christian, non-Christian a lot on the original text. He completely dismisses all the main facts surrounding it because it doesn't fit his worldview. I understand it though. I understand the skepticism. If you're here today and you're skeptical about the resurrection, I get it. Because friends, sometimes people get sick and they recover and that's fairly common. Being resurrected from the dead, not so much. And so we have to have this barrier of faith in trusting that maybe this actually happened. The Bible is claiming something that's extraordinary here. Extraordinarily hard for some people to believe. And Mr. Dawkins, like so many others, uh, they're, the fact, they, they won't allow the facts that have been seen historically or by forensic work on the literature to cloud their judgment because their worldview won't allow there to be anything miraculous that happens. But he couldn't be more wrong about the accounts about the life and death and even the resurrection of Jesus in the literature. He couldn't be more wrong. Now, I'm not picking on Richard Dawkins. Uh, let me pick on us for a little bit. Let, let, let me pick on me. Let me pick on me. Better me than you, right? 
When I grew up in a church and Easter Sunday morning was a lot like this, so exciting. And we would sing a song, a hymn, that many in this room probably know. It starts out, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. And it crescendos in the chorus. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And it's speaking of a personal experience. And as a follower of Jesus, certainly early in my existence, it was a personal experience. I had experienced Jesus. And that was enough for me for a while. For a while it was. But the problem was over time is my faith began to struggle because for me, my faith goes through my mind and then to my heart. And the logical, rational side of me tried to engage, like, I see everybody else enjoying it. And I've experienced Jesus, but what I was lacking was evidence. Because if somebody asked me, how do you know Jesus was risen from the grave? I'd be like, uh, because I feel it. Here's an interesting truth I learned earlier in my Christian experience of my faith. That it is personal experience with public evidence that provides a firm foundation for faith. See, there is a reasonable faith it talks about in Scripture. A reasoning of faith so that if somebody asks you, you have an answer. There is, certainly, faith needs to be experienced personally. It is something you need to personally experience, faith in Jesus. But it also needs public evidence that provides a foundation. So today I want to look at a couple of the proofs of the resurrection. And why this is so important is because without a resurrection, we don't have this. There is no Christianity. So for some people, they see the resurrection as fake news. And I'm going to talk to them in a minute. Other people, they treat the resurrection as soft news. And churches do this a lot, even these days. It's not so much they believe in it. Soft news is news you can use. It's the entertainment section. It's the People magazine section. It's news you can use, but it doesn't really affect you. It's when you read studies where scientists say, if you're on this diet, you'll have more energy and you'll look more beautiful. And so you eat grapefruits all day long. Or, or scientists now have discovered that coffee cures everything. And everybody said, yeah, yeah, no. You know where my legions lie, but I just saw something in California. Did you read that in the news feed? Go check your social media. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and it's soft news. And so people have taken that and they treat the resurrection like it's soft news. In other words, it maybe it didn't factually happen, but the principle is inspiring. It's so inspiring in that, listen, when you're going through the rough times and life is beating you up and life is dumping on you, you're going through the roughest moments. Hey, after winter comes spring. You know, out of the ashes comes amazing comebacks. You can do it. Things will turn around. There's a silver lining here. And we begin to reduce the factual part of the resurrection to an inspiring principle. And certainly it's inspiring, but it's so much larger than that. To be clear, Paul and the early church, they didn't see the resurrection as fake news or soft news. For them, it was hard news. It was factual news that affects you. Hard news is, is like there's a blizzard on outside. 
and you're going to go out to three feet of snow on your vehicle. I'm told there is not a blizzard outside, <laughs> but, but that would be hard news. Or there's a fire in South Scarborough, or there's a new administration, and you're going to be taxed more right now. That's hard news. It's just factual news, and it actually affects you. Now, you can ignore soft news because it doesn't affect you. You can't ignore hard news because it affects everyone in this room. You can dismiss fake news because it's not factual. You can't dismiss hard news because it's factual. And to be clear, Paul, when he chose that term herald, he and others in the early church were going around the then known world declaring hard news that Jesus had risen from the grave. There was no such thing as soft news in that ancient culture. No one, a herald didn't run into the city and say, now the proclamation about style and fashion, what are they wearing in Sparta this spring? Nobody did that. They just had hard news, proclamation, something has happened in history by fact and it has changed and affected everyone's life. So let's look at the evidence. I'm gonna give you three tests. Are you ready to do it? This is what historians, literary critics do to test the authenticity of an ancient story. We're gonna do it this morning. You good? There's five of us and we're going for it together. We're in this. Okay, here's the first one. The first test is the alternative truth test. This puts the burden of proof on those who might say there was no resurrection you would have to come up with a feasible, plausible, and historical argument for why the early church even exists. Because it makes no sense without a resurrection. It makes no sense that there would be a Christianity today in 2018 without a resurrection. Absolutely no sense. You see, in the decades that followed Jesus and the decades preceding Jesus, there were many movements like Christianity. There are would-be messiahs that came on the historical scene. Followers would follow them. And consistently throughout the historical narrative, you can read it everywhere, each one of them was executed or killed at one point. And you know what happened after they died? Their movement died. Everyone went home. Everyone went back to work. Every one of them consistently died when their leader died, except one. One movement did not die when their leader died. Why? What made Christianity so different? What made this marginal cult in the, in the backwoods of the Roman Empire that exploded and saturated that empire by the end of the third century? What happened? How come it's so different? Well, there's an interesting scholar, his name is Larry Harato, uh, from the University of Edinburgh. He did great work on this. He studied Christianity in the first three centuries of its growth. And I love the title of his book. He called his book, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? I love it. Now, if you love history, you'll love this book. If you don't like history, do not read this book. It's thick with details. But it's absolutely fascinating because in the first three centuries, it was horribly difficult to be a Christian incredibly hard to be a Christian. In fact, here's what he concludes, one of the statements he makes. He says, to become a Christian was typically fraught with serious consequences. Early Christians were objects of ridicule and harassment, physical abuse by family members, hostility from governing authorities, economic disadvantages, even death. 
Why would anyone want to become a Christian? Why would anyone sign up for that? People in our culture will want to sign up to religion because they think their life is getting better. In the first three centuries, they knew when they became a Christian, it got worse. It got worse. Consistently, it got worse. But it wouldn't stop growing. Oxford historian Robin Lane Fox said this, no other cult in the empire grew anything like the spread of Christianity. It was unprecedented growth amidst unprecedented persecution. Why was that? Well, you can go back even further. There's a Roman governor, I love his name. His name was Pliny the Younger. I think I should be going with that, Jonathan the Younger. Because, you know, who wants to be the older, right? So, you know, Pliny the Younger. He's a governor of a Roman region, and he writes Emperor Trajan. And you can Google this. It's a fascinating read. He's having trouble with this cult called Christianity. They're having trouble figuring it out, but they're having trouble containing it. And he's trying to contain it. In fact, here's what he says. He writes to Trajan. He says, the Christians were of many ages. This is significant. Young and old were attracted to Christianity. They were of every rank, masters, slaves, everything in between. Nothing like in the, in that, in the then known world was there ever a, a faith or a movement that attracted both master, slave, young and old. And this was the most controversial of all. They were also both sexist. And they fellowshiped together. Early Christianity was accused of immorality, all kinds of stuff, because they weren't used to men and women having equal standing. That wasn't normal in the culture, but it was in the early church. And he goes on to say this, the temples of the gods are almost deserted. So they're upset, he's upset, because all of a sudden, the traditional Roman temples have been almost deserted. This would impact the economy, the idols wouldn't be sold, uh, there were all kinds of effects from this, from the Christian movement at that time. And here's what happens. He writes Trajan and he wants permission to arrest Christians, to persecute them, and to kill them. And he gets permission to do that. He gets his permission for it. Given the frequent negative consequences of becoming a Christian in the first three centuries, the burden of proof lies with those who say there was no resurrection to explain it. There's almost no other conclusion you can come to. Friends, I can tell you one thing. It didn't grow under the circumstances because of soft news. I mean, when people are getting beaten up and thrown in jail, they're not sitting in the jail encouraging themselves, well, you know, after winter comes the spring. There's a silver lining in this. Oh, it wasn't soft news. It wasn't fake news. Who would die for a lie? Who would die for a lie and propagate that? This was hard news that could not be denied, and it affected them, and it emboldened them. They faced suffering at unprecedented levels because they proclaim a truth, and they believe that Jesus actually rose from the grave. So the, there's a man named Luke, and he was a medical doctor, and he writes the accounts of the courage of the first century believers, and he starts with reflecting on the fact that the disciples, they weren't so great. They, when the pressure was on, they left. They, 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 they checked out. But something changed in them, and he records it in Acts chapter 4. Everything changes. They become fierce leaders, like other would-be, they had just fallen away like every other would-be Messiah movement had. When the leader died, the movement died. But in Acts 4, we see a different version of them. 
says the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were while they were speaking to people, they were greatly disturbed when the apostles teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They had Peter and John brought before them, code word, arrested, and began to question them, by what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, a little direct, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given unto mankind by which you must be saved. And then they say this, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. How else do you account for the growth? How else do you account that it even survived unless something dramatic, unbelievable, amazing changed them forever? Life was so hard on them. It had to be hard news that Jesus had risen from the grave. So what is the alternative truth? Well, that burden belongs to you if you don't believe in the resurrection. The resurrection is what fueled those early Christians it wasn't his death, it was his resurrection that fueled them forward. Here's the second test. You ready for a second test? Okay, one person is with me now. I had five in the beginning. I'm down to one. It's the validity test. Now, did you notice in 1 Corinthians 15, there's a lot of witnesses that, Peter, that Paul mentions. He says, Jesus in his risen state appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12. Then he appeared to 500 people in one setting. The validity test is this. These are eyewitness accounts, and you need to be able to test the validity of those eyewitnesses. Well, whether or not we can actually believe them. How can we believe the text? How can we believe that that's true? What is the validity? Was Paul lying? Did his early followers lie? Were there collusion? Was it a massive hoax, and they colluded together to propagate this? And conspiracy theorists will say that. And if you want good conspiracies, go to the History Channel. It's fascinating watching them butcher the historical narrative. But that's a different, question. That's a different time. Here's the interesting thing. When historians look back on this, and forensic literary uh, experts look back on this, they have to ask themselves in testing the validity of the text there, is when they were facing torture, imprisonment, and death. You mean no one broke rank with a hoax story? Not one of them chose self-preservation over mutilation? Friends, they faced that not because they were deluded or fanatical, but because it was true. They had seen Jesus in his risen state, and it changed them forever. It gave validity to them. Christ, if Christ had not risen from the grave, and they knew it, well, that would have changed everything. So the validity of the witnesses is important. Paul writes this to the Corinthian church about 10 to 15 years, experts will tell you, 10 to 15 years after Jesus died. That's why in the text he says this, there's 500 people, some of which are, are still alive. Go ask them. 
Now, Paul says this, and he writes this in a document that is a public document. It's read publicly. It's not hidden. And it's written in a time in history where there was what was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was never safer and never easier to travel. It was a bold invitation to test the validity of the risen Christ, that it was actually true. It's important to remember, and if you're here, and I understand it, because I hear all kinds of stuff, and it's not usually by scholars, but it's usually on TV. It's important that you understand the New Testament and the Gospels are maybe the most tested pieces of ancient literature and most authenticated pieces of Christian literature that we have in our possession today. And if you struggle with the validity of it, I really encourage you to check out this book called The Jesus Legend. It's a fantastic book that will help you understand the Gospels and the validity of the text and how important that is. In fact, a non-Christian scholar named Gerd Ludemann, he studied this, uh, and he determined after he saw all of the ancient texts, both the biblical ones and the supporting historians that spoke of it, like Josephus and others, he concluded, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the other disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Now, he's not going so far to say that Jesus physically rose because he's not a Christian. But he can't deny that in the facts that are known to us, there's no way that these men didn't experience Jesus in his risen state. See, one of the most validating witnesses are right in the text there when he says this, that that Jesus visited James. Now, I love this because one of the ways you can test ancient literature is were those that were hostile to the message of Jesus, when they change, that's a game changer. John is the, or James is the half-brother of Jesus. So let me ask you a question. Think for a moment. What would your brother have to do to prove that he was God to you? Like, just think about that. What would your brother have to do to prove that he was God. I have three brothers, Philip, Malcolm, and Peter. They're nice guys. I was thinking today, I was thinking, which one's the closest to Jesus? And none of them qualified. <laughs> you know, what would your brother have to do to convince you? It wouldn't be even a miracle. I mean, my brothers could do something miraculous or something amazing, and I might be amazed, but I'm not, they're not God. And James didn't follow Jesus during his public ministry. But something changed after the resurrection. I'll tell you this, if I'd seen my brother crucified, bled out and died, I saw him laid low in a grave, and if he came knocking later that week... You're God. You're God. It's not just James, though. Paul. Paul, and it's, you can check historians. Go check Josephus about the story of Paul. He's written about in other ancient historical documents. And Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He hated the Christian faith. He hated Jesus. He hunted them down systematically. He was actually pretty good at it. This was a man that was very rational, this was a man that was very intelligent, and he hated what they stood for. And yet, Paul, in this moment, he meets the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, and everything changes. The validity 
of the eyewitnesses matters a whole lot. And in the testing, there are too many witnesses, friends, too many credible witnesses, too many historical facts just to dismiss the resurrection. You ready for one more test? Now, this last test, I want you to say it out loud with me because I love this word criterion because I haven't used it this week, have you? It's just not a word we use all the time, but let's say it again. Here's what historians use on one last test to determine the validity of a historical happening, and it's this one, the criterion of the embarrassment test. Let's say it again, the criterion of the embarrassment test. Here's what this means in a nutshell. It means this, if they look in a historical story, a historical ancient literature or narrative, and they see that there are embarrassing moments for the authors and those that are the principal characters, it's probably true. Because if you are sanitizing the text, if you were trying to pull off a hoax, you would clean up the text. You would make the principal heroes in the text come off a little better than they actually do. This is very unique in the Bible. The Bible is filled with flawed heroes. Except for Jesus, every one of the people in the Bible have all of these major flaws in their life. And the Bible tells us them. Tells us, how would you like people to know your major flaws? But for centuries, everyone known King David's major flaw murder or adulterer. Well, there you go. And here's the interesting thing. There's not one perfect family in the Bible. Not even Jesus' family is perfect. It is so raw. It's so, so honest. And if you were trying to sustain a movement, if you were trying to fabricate a hoax and sustain a movement, you would have cleaned it up a little bit better. You would have made it more heroic. You would have, you would have sanitized things. Like when, and especially if you have a Catholic background here, you know how important Peter is because Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. Couldn't you have made Peter look a little better? I mean, he denies Jesus three times. What kind of man was he? I mean, if I was rewriting the text, it would be something like this. It'd be like, and I locked arms with Jesus, and I said, over my dead body. <laughs> but the text says they ran away as cowards. See, at least, if you were redoing it, if you wanted to rewrite it, if you had a purpose in sustaining the movement of Jesus, you would have done a little bit of spin. You know, you, maybe they could be more courageous or more faith-filled, right? More faith-filled, or at least they should have some sweet skills. Like they should have some superpowers or something that sets them apart. But the Bible is so real. It says so many things about them. It tells us that the greatest heroes of our faith were real scared, that they were real insecure, and they were real concerned about themselves. Do you notice that in the narrative? They're very concerned about their self-preservation, more so than even Jesus' preservation. See, friends, the Bible reads just like history. If these guys wouldn't stand by Jesus when he was alive, why would they stand by a lie after he's dead? If, if Jesus couldn't stay alive to keep the movement alive, why would they, why would they keep threat, under threat of life try to keep a lie alive? You wouldn't risk your lives for that. Maybe the biggest thing about the embarrassment criterion is the, do you remember who discovered the empty tomb? What gender were they? They were women. Now, we're in 2018, but 
in that ancient culture, in, in that ancient culture, women, their testimony was not admissible in any court or was in ballot. It was the oppressive nature of the culture at that time. But it wasn't just Hebrew culture. It was even worse in Roman culture. Women were so dismissed. If you were writing a text that you wanted to be believable at that time, you would have written in men. Men discovered Jesus' empty tomb. Friends, the only reason it says women there, and the only plausible reason, is because it's true. It's true. There was an empty tomb, and women discovered it. Friends, you're not here because someone died. Lots of people do that. Billions of people have died. You're not here because someone was crucified. Thousands of people were crucified during Jesus' day. Thousands of people. You're not here because someone had a great series of lectures and teachings. You're here today because someone couldn't stay dead. You're here today because Jesus would not stay dead. And that is why your faith is not in vain and not useless. If you're a follower of Jesus, your faith is not in vain. Your service to others in the community and in this world and even in this church is not in vain. Your giving is not in vain. Why? Because he that was laid low in the grave rose again. Fact. Now, here, if you're not a follower of Jesus, and maybe I'm introducing some thoughts you, you never thought of, or maybe you still have problems with what I've said, I'm glad you're here. Let me tell you this, though. Your curiosity, it's not in vain. Your exploration of faith is not in vain. Friends, you're among people that believe not only Jesus died, but he rose. And that's a game changer. Christian author and speaker Andy Stanley said it this way, Christianity hinges on the resurrection. If a man can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, just go with whatever that man says. <laughs> Friends, the resurrection is essential to our faith. I want to give you an opportunity before we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together as a church community. I want to give you an opportunity to come to God with your lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. That he came and lived a life that none of us could live. We are all flawed people in this room. Imperfect. Marred by sin. Our own sin and even the sin of the things that have been done to us, Lord. And God, you knew that that sin would separate us from you. And the, the, the penalty for that sin would be death, a separation from you forever. And so you stepped into human history. And you laid down your life and you allowed all of our sin to be heaped upon you. So that we could get all of your righteousness. And we could be back in relationship with God the Father. God, I pray right now that those of us in this room who are followers of you, that you by your Holy Spirit would remind us because of the resurrection, our faith is not in vain. That because of the resurrection, Lord, our, our determinedness, God, 
the way we hold the things, even when our circumstances look upside down and we find a deep joy in you, it's not in vain, God, because you didn't stay dead. Lord, I pray for those in this room who maybe their curiosity, their exploration, or even their opposition or hostility to faith. Holy Spirit, I pray, God, that you would reveal Jesus to them, that you would connect thoughts with heart and heart with thought, and you would renew them from the inside out, just like all of us need to experience to be in relationship with you. And just in the context of this prayer, friends, before I just move on, if you're here today and you want to make a decision just to follow Jesus, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I want to pray with you. I'd invite you just to slip a hand up in the air, and I'm looking in the balcony first. Well, yeah, okay, I see a number that are just saying, I want to take a step in a relationship with Jesus. And then on the main floor, if there are those around you that maybe just you'd raise your hand and say, I, I, I have some new information today. Or I'm at a new place today and I'm just ready to take a step in faith towards Jesus. If that's you, just raise your hand. You can just put it down after you've raised it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Thank you. Father, you've seen everyone who just indicated with their physical being the fact that they want to connect you with their spiritual being. And if this prayer finds you where you're at, friends, go ahead and just lean into this prayer. Jesus, I believe you died and rose again. And I place my faith in you to direct me in this life. Fill me with the same spirit that raised you from the dead. And help me to live a life that looks like yours. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.